All rise. The Honorables, the Presiding Chief Judge and Judges of the Court of Appeals of the State of North Carolina. Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes. The Court of Appeals is now in session. God save the state and this honorable court. Be seated. Thank you. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Court of Appeals. Uh, we are very pleased to be back here today uh, for arguments and um, glad to have everyone here. We have one case for argument uh, this morning, and it looks like everyone is in place for that. Um, first of all, just I'll briefly introduce the panel. Of course, I'm Judge Donna Stroud. Uh, to my right, we have Judge John Airwood. To my left, Judge Laura Collins. And I uh, just wanted to remind everyone this morning, since we are dealing with a termination of parental rights case, and of course the records and everything in these is confidential, uh, all of our arguments are now streamed live on YouTube. Uh, and obviously we have a big audience. So I, I know you all will take care and obviously you have in the record and the briefs, but just be careful not to accidentally use a name, uh, you know, of, other than a pseudonym that has been designated or to reveal any of the personal, uh, you know, private information regarding uh, the child or anything in the case that should not be. Just so a reminder for you and for us uh, <laughs> uh, to be careful about that since this is being streamed. So, all right. Good morning, and may it please the court. My name is Elizabeth Simpson. I am pro bono counsel for the appellant, respondent mother, Jatoya P. I would like to reserve 10 minutes, please. And remember on the names. Yes, thank you. Jatoya yes. P is proper? What now? The mother's mother. first Let's name. Let's just refer to mother as mother. Okay. Father as father, child's best pseudonyms. Thank you, Your Honor. Mm -hmm. This case is important. Of course, it's important to the mother and Mark and Ken, as it will determine whether they have any chance to reunite again as a family. It's also important to extended community, family and friends, including many here today, and family back home in Georgia, great grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins. Where This is where Mark lived happily with, with the mother prior to the trip to Durham in summer 2017 when the mother unexpectedly went into labor with Ken prematurely. Finally, it's also important to the public policy of North Carolina, which is why this court has seen four amicus briefs filed, including one by the North Carolina Department, North Carolina Coalition Against Domestic Violence, articulating its grave concern that the district court's decision in this case poses a risk to the integrity of families impacted by domestic violence. But ma'am, you raised domestic violence and I've seen a plethora of the amici briefs in this case. The domestic violence that was not occasioned and there was no rumor of it before the child was removed from the home, is that correct? It's correct that there was not a rumor of it before the child was moved from the home. In December 2017, the very first month that the children were in out-of-home placement, they were placed with the mother's own mother. And that, dis that placement disrupted because of the father's disruptive behavior. The mom had to call the police on the father because of that disruptive behavior. And at that time, the department intercepted text messages from the father saying that he was an abusive and ugly person when he was high. This kind of aggressive behavior continued throughout the course of the case, and the district court and the department were aware of it. The district court's orders are full of concerns about this domestic violence element. Uh, the expert witnesses that the mother offered at trial, the, um, both the treating psychologist and the Emily McCool, who was the domestic violence victimology expert, both would have explained that domestic violence is marked not only by physical acts, like the assault by strangulation that occurred in September 2018, but also manipulation, gaslighting, and deception, and that these emotional aspects of abuse were explanatory of why the mother might not have uh, initially suspected the father when he denied hurting Ken. So that really the domestic violence was much more complicated than solely physical acts, 
although there certainly were plenty of incidents of that, but it was also an entire um, spectrum of power and control. Are you saying, of course, the, the district court judges, which I used to be one, uh, deal with domestic violence all the time. Um, are, are you suggesting that the judge or the court, you know, I mean, or DSS and social workers would be unaware of the uh, full range of the cycle of domestic violence? Um, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't presume to know that the knowledge of the, of the district judge or the department actors. I, I would certainly hope they'd be familiar with that, but I think that the expert testimony, both from the treating psychologist who was um, a PhD and who did have postdoctoral studies in domestic violence and treating people with domestic violence, so very intimate intellectual knowledge of that, and Emily McCool, who both had a law degree and an MSW, they would have had very specialized information to share about that. And so the generalized information the district court may or may not have known, it was not appropriate to rely on that and to exclude testimony to put in the record to actually explain the dynamics in this relationship. This, this case, it falls into the category of cases where there is serious infant abuse and two caregivers. And initially there's unclarity about which caregiver inflicted the abuse or whether they conspired together. Um, but we know that if it's impossible for the court to tell which caregiver hurt the child, the court may terminate as to both. And that's YYET. And we also know that if one caregiver obviously inflicted the abuse, the district court you know, pins the abuse on that person, but the co-parent refuses to acknowledge it and refuses to take steps to keep themselves safe for instance, by separating from the abuser who may still be engaged in acts of domestic violence, then the court can terminate as to both. However, if the district court clearly assigns blame to one parent, as here, and not the other, also as here, it's more like DA, and that was a reunification case. And there have to be additional facts for the court to terminate for both parents. And those facts simply aren't in the record here. In fact, the facts that the court found don't lead logically to the ultimate conclusions of law. Detoya is not like the many mothers in the cases cited by the Guardian. And these are cases where mothers repeatedly fail to protect children from the father's abuse. Um, in those cases, the abuse is ongoing and persistent. And here, in contrast, there was no adverse credibility finding against the mother, just a series of findings of fact that she made progress and took adequate steps to ensure safety. Um, and meanwhile, the district court just put an impossible burden on her to explain one unwitnessed incident. And that incident, the district court clearly assigned responsibility to the father as she terminated the father under section A8, that he committed felony assault on a child. So really the case begs the question of what more Toya could have done. Both of the orders, the TPR order and the reunification order, should be overturned. With regard to the TPR order, crucial findings of fact were not supported by clear, cogent, and convincing evidence, and the, find, the other findings the court made actually would logically support the opposite conclusions. Um, for instance, number 87, that the environment that existed on December 3rd, 2017, still exists today. And finding in fact 85, that the mother did not, uh, that willfully refused to complete court-ordered services. The environment that existed that weekend, from November 30th, a Friday, I mean a Thursday, to December 3rd, a Sunday, no longer exists. On December 3rd, Toya was partnered with a man who had abused their child and then covered it up and lied about it. On December 3rd, the mother did not recognize or realize that the father had committed that abuse. And on December 3rd, Toya was a visitor to North Carolina. She did not have a home or a stable job or a stable community here. She was a visitor. By the time of the TPR trial, the district court found that the mother had separated from the father and the district court found that the father was responsible for felony assault on the child under A8, and that the father had pled guilty to felony child abuse. The district court found that Toya believed that the father injured the child, 
that is finding of fact 66, and that the mother wanted the father's rights terminated. That's on page 836. At that point, neither child was a fragile preemie in need of extra protection, and the mother had done extensive DV therapy, learning about the cycle of violence, and the therapist came and testified that she had gained insight and growth, and that her children were her first priority. By the time of the trial, she had secure housing in Durham, a secure community, a stable job, she was fully compliant with child support, and she had made Durham her home because her kids are here. The real issue in the case is that the outcome was foreordained in 2019, and since then, it's been the outcome that has been judged as opposed to the specific facts. In 2019, the mother visited with Mark. The social worker said the visits went well, that Mark was happy to see her. Afterward, Mark displayed upset behaviors, and the department told Mark's therapist that termination was, quote, imminent. That was in 2019, summer 2019. Termination was finalized in July 2021. On that basis, the therapist recommended that visitation cease between mom and, and Mark, and it did cease. And, and then later, a weakened bond was cited as one reason for terminating rights at the dispositional phase. Later, in January 2020, the court received recommendations that reunification be ended as a permanent plan. And this was before the, the court or the department or the guardian had seen the results of the parental capacity exam, which was finalized just in time for a February 10, 2020 hearing. The psychologist was rushing to get it done because the mother begged her to get it done in time for this hearing. Um, the psychologist had been appointed by the court. She considered the court her client, not the mother. Um, the psychologist consulted with the department about what was needed, got input from the department about the case, and answered referral questions from the department and gave a very glowing parental capacity evaluation. The psychologist was an expert in forensic credibility she testified that she found the mother credible and to be willing and able to capably parent her children. Back to the domestic violence element, the, the court impliedly said in the order that it was really too late to receive this evidence. Um, in finding of fact 81, the court said that it could not revise the historical narrative of what occurred based on this evidence. But that was really a legal error because the district court needed to take facts into account up until the time of the termination hearing. It was not appropriate to freeze facts as they were in 2019 or early 2020 as of 2021 when things had changed. This was also problematic with the reunification order because by the time it was signed in October 2020, several of the really crucial facts were no longer true. The district court said that one concern was that there were still criminal charges pending against the mother and that she might have to spend time in prison. But in fact, by the time the order was entered in October 2020, those charges had been voluntarily dismissed by the Durham district attorney and the mother had advised the court of that change in circumstances. The court also expressed concern that the mother had never obtained a domestic violence protective order. Again, as soon as the district court expressed that the mother ought to get one, the mother went and engaged herself in domestic violence counseling. That was not ordered by the court. It was not paid for by the department or the court. But the mother went and did that to try and learn about what she was hearing about these concerns. And as a result of that therapy, did go and get a domestic violence protective order. And that, was, that had happened before this order was entered. Additionally, in the order, the district court said and found that the mother would do everything possible to reunite with her children. And the only uh, problem the district court found that made the home unsuitable was that the mother still had not come up with an explanation for what happened to Ken. But again, this was an unwitnessed incident. The father had lied about this incident for several years, but then finally, in May 2020, sent a series of bizarre and confessional emails but in those confessional texts or emails that he sent, didn't he indicate, 
am I correct that he indicated he dropped the child once and that caused all these injuries? Yes, Your Honor. And In that's clearly not the case. Is that also not, you'll concede that, that clearly this is a case of massive abuse of this child that was born prematurely. Yes, this was, this was definitely a, something very, very traumatic and intentional happened to Ken. The import of those emails was that he was finally taking responsibility for it. The department's expert, Dr. Cynthia Brown, who testified at trial, said that when, when they receive confessions about child abuse, usually they're minimizations. They minimize the intent and they minimize the force. But this was the first time the father actually admitted that it was his fault. And he now, did the evidence, the medical evidence, you keep talking about a, an unwitnessed incident. Doesn't the medical evidence in this case tend to show a lengthy or more than one incident where this child was abused? I don't think that's quite clear. What the district court found... But the evidence is substantial as to the number of injuries that this premature child, baby who was born prematurely, received, right? And they, yeah. there's a list of them. And I guess the question is, how can you draw the inference? You keep saying an incident when you have a lengthy, lengthy list of injuries that this child received. I think the medical doctors never finally concluded exactly what happened, and there are various things that could have happened. What Dr. Brown said, it could have been a violent shaking and throwing of the baby, and then um, the surmise would be failing to take the feedings and being in that state of shock for some time before, before being discovered by the mother is what would lead to the low body temperature um, and losing of weight. Recall but there were that, intracranial brain injuries, is that correct? Yes, Your Honor. And it's important to note that as of Thursday, November 30th, the child was in good condition. He was in healthy condition. He was seen by an ophthalmologist at Duke Hospital, and they noted that he was in good condition. So everything that the, that the ER found on Sunday, December 3rd, occurred in that short time frame. The mother has been consistent and honest that she, she was there the entire time, but common sense says that she was sleeping at times. She was a mother of a premature baby and a toddler. And with a premature baby, he was barely at gestational age. He could lose weight, he could lose health and vitality very, very quickly after a traumatic incident. And just so that I'm clear, the, the finding that there continues to be no explanation for the child's injury and medical condition as it existed on December 3rd, is supported by clear, cogent, and convincing evidence, correct? Yes, because when the father provided his partial explanation, which did not fully encapsulate what must have happened, he volunteered to be interviewed by the department, and the department urged him to consult an attorney, and so he never provided that extra information. Um, and, and the mother did not have that information, and so the court, unfortunately, did not receive it. The mother testified about what happened when she discovered um, Ken in his state after an overnight, um, and that she first called her mother for advice, and he, she indicated that she should wait and see. She waited and seed for a while. She was monitoring his diapers and trying to see if he would take any bottles, and then decided to go to the emergency room, and really take him at that time did save his life. She was there with him for the entire month of December staying with him, while meanwhile the father was disrupting the placement of Mark with her mom and stepdad, and the police had to be called on him. The other, the other point to make is that really the legal analysis as to Mark and Ken has to be done separately. So at the time of the adjudication in 2018, when the mother consented to that adjudication in a spirit of cooperation because she was told that that would help her reunify with her children. At that stage, she didn't know what happened. She didn't understand. It was a mystery. 
but she consented to that adjudication of abuse and or neglect in a spirit of cooperation and hoping to reunify. That was a status question, but at this point, the, the judge needed to decide if the mother abused or neglected Ken or if the mother abused or neglected Mark. And as to Mark, it's even more attenuated. When he was reviewed by child abuse pediatricians right after the incident, they found him to be developmentally thriving and very well attached to his mom. He had breastfed for 18 months and he had a very secure attachment. And there really is no evidence in the record that he has ever been abused and that the, and the only neglect was living in an injurious environment because of the very serious, serious abuse of Ken. So those things must be looked at separately um, when reviewing the orders. The other, the other crucial finding of fact that was erroneous, that, that the mother had willfully refused to complete her case plan, is not supported by the evidence and the other findings that the district court made. Um, the mother had done parent coaching, and it was the parent coaching that the department intended for her to do, learning about early childhood development, health and safety skills, and seeking emergency treatment. The coach came and testified. By the time she testified at trial, she was the only witness who had seen the mother interact with both children because of the social worker turnover. There had been five social workers over the life of the case, and the, the final social worker had not seen all of the visitation and, in fact, testified erroneously that some of it had not occurred. The parent coach had called the department to find out what course of study the mother needed. Uh, she also, as I previously mentioned, did conduct the parental capacity evaluation as she was ordered to do, as well as submit to drug tests with no problems, no substance abuse, and she went through several courses of therapy, which the therapist found to be uh, agreeable. If I may reserve my time? Yes. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. May it please the court. My name is Elizabeth Gurney, and together with Derek Hensley, I represent the Durham Department of Social Services. Today, myself and counsel for the guardian ad litem, Michelle Lynch, will evenly divide the argument time. According to the North Carolina Supreme Court's 2020 holding in NRAE DWP, Termination of parental rights proceedings are not meant to be punitive against the parent, but to ensure the safety and well-being of the child. Although the mother asked this court to focus on several other issues today, the trial court's order should be affirmed because the trial court focused on the safety and well-being of Ken and Mark. Throughout this case, from the disposition order, through each permanency planning order, and finally, at the termination, the cornerstone issue for the court was the safety of Ken and Mark. The court's cornerstone was, how did Ken become so terribly injured and in the serious medical condition he was in between November the 30th, 2017, and December the 3rd, 2017, and the risk of that same environment to Mark. What was Ken's condition on December the 3rd, 2017? According to the Child Abuse Evaluation, which we call in Durham the CANMEC, which can be found in the medical record uh, approximately at pages 191 to 192 in the record in particular, these are his injuries as of November the 3rd. He had four left rib fractures, the fourth, the fifth, the seventh, and the eighth, all at various stages of healing. Now, to note, when he went to an ophthalmologist appointment on November the 30th, they did not do a skeletal survey. He had three right rib fractures, the second, the third, and the eighth. At various, at various stages of healing. He had a left foot fracture 
He had a um, left toe fracture. He had a right wrist fracture. He had retinal hemorrhages in both eyes, too numerous to count. He had bilateral subdural hematomas, serious brain injuries. And he presented on that day as undernourished. In fact, the expert testified that he was cachectic looking, which means wasted away, she explained at the termination. Hypoglycemic, dehydrated, cold, 94 degrees, and in very serious condition. These injuries and medical conditions have not ever been explained by either the father or the mother, who were the only caretakers for the boys during this time. On appeal, the mother asked this panel to focus on several other issues to include whether this court should issue a writ allowing a petition for discretionary review for the ceased reunification order to be heard on appeal whether her status as a victim of domestic violence was relevant as a reason for removal in January 2018, even though the first incident did not occur until September of 2018, whether the mother's insistence that she complied with court-ordered services without fully engaging them to the, in them to the, success, to the satisfaction of the court was error, despite numerous findings of fact showing that the court weighed each and every service very carefully and found that they did not alleviate the conditions and the reasons for removal. Can I ask a question? So yes, ma'am. What is, what is required of Mother more than saying, I didn't do this, he did it, and I wasn't there. I don't have any more information. So thank you, Judge Collins, for the question. Um, so. The issue of the weighing of mother's failure to explain the cause. So um, mother did not explain the injuries, nor did father. And what you heard um, counsel um, say in her argument was that the court found pursuant to 1111A8 that father was convicted of this and therefore the court laid the blame on him. That finding does not lay the blame on him. In fact, two expert witnesses at the termination testified, and that is clear and convincing evidence sufficient to find that his explanation does not fully explain all of the injuries that were in the record and it certainly does not explain the medical condition that he was in on November the, on December the 3rd, 2017. Sure, I'm just, just going to the injuries. Yes, ma'am. Although his explanation isn't sufficient. Yes, ma'am. If mother was not there, how can she make his explanation any more sufficient? Um, the evidence showed from mother's own testimony, both at disposition and at termination, she reaffirmed that she was with both of the boys the entire time from November the 30th through December the 3rd at the presentation. She was with both of the boys, and yet she had no explanation for these injuries. But you will, you will concede that, that it's likely that she slept at some point. She was asked these questions on direct. And she says that she was there. And she, um, she contends that she was there. And she, I would concede that she slept. Um, however, she says that she was, between she and the, and the father, they were the sole caretakers. And the case law is clear that between the two caretakers, if there are only two caretakers, and if there are injuries to a non-ambulatory infant, and there is no explanation that explains those um, injuries, then it is um, 
then it is um, a finding that should be upheld um, such that um, they are jointly responsible for these injuries because there is no other explanation for them. And my co-counsel, in fact, I was getting to uh, where we were gonna divide the issues. Um, and this, um, my co-counsel is fully prepared to talk about all of that case law. Uh, although I'd be happy to answer more of those questions and get more into it if you would like me to do that. But I will probably flounder a little bit more <laughs> than Ms. Lynch. Yeah, I'll wait, I'll ask her the question. Thank you so much. And it's, I didn't know if Judge Arrowwood had something. Go ahead. I'll okay. And so, um, so with respect to um, the first issue, with respect to the writ, we are asking that the writ be denied at this time with respect to the cease reunification um, order, and. We are asking that because the mother did not properly preserve or appeal that order. Um, under 7B1001A8 and 2, it requires two steps that the order be uh, preserved, the right to appeal be preserved, and that a separate notice of appeal be filed within 30 days of the entry and service of the TPR order. Neither one of those things was completed. And um, the first time we heard about the um, cont contest of the cease reunification order was when the writ was filed at the time of the briefs. And at that time when the, when the writ was filed, there was no um, showing of mer merit or error um, that was committed below within the writ itself. And we would cite State versus Bishop 2017 and Graham versus Rogers from 1996, which holds that three things must be shown, that no appeal was provided at law, and that a prima facie case of error below should be shown and there should be some merit to the petition. And so we're asking that that writ be denied and that court not consider the appeal of the cease reunification order. And with respect to the domestic violence um, issues, this, um, Your Honor, seems to be a bedrock of mother's contentions. Um, she contends that she was a domestic violence victim. However, the children did not come into care due to domestic violence that had not yet occurred. Um, and therefore, the mother was not ordered to do any domestic, domestic violence-related services at disposition. And therefore, uh, the ground of 1111A2 did not contain any, um, any services that she did not complete, were, did not rest on the uh, failure to do any services related to domestic violence. And so the termination was completely unrelated to anything having to do with domestic violence. Could you speak to Mark a little bit? Yes. And yes, Your Honor. The lack of, you know, there was, there's been discussion about lack of a bond between Mark and the mother, uh, but then part of that lack of bond was because the department had cut off any, uh, the psychologist had recommended cutting off any any interaction. And so, and you heard the argument about the department was telling the psychologist, well, we're going to terminate parental rights. And so, can you speak to that issue, yeah. please, ma'am? Yes, Your Honor. Or that argument that was made. Yes, Your Honor, thank you. So the visitation for Mark did indeed continue during um, the majority of the case. In fact, even when mother was incarcerated, 
um, the department continued to make sure that mother got a chance to visit with Mark. And in fact, mother was the, pers the person who asked that visitation stop uh, during her incarceration. And when she was released from her jail time um, on her pretrial, um, the first thing she did was ask that visits start again, and visits did indeed start again. And Mark, um, at that time, um, started to have um, distressing behaviors. And there was a hearing at which there was evidence presented to the district court about these behaviors and distress that he had immediately following the visits. And there is an order, and I'm, um, if I had it, I, uh, there is an order <laughs> at permanency planning with details about exactly what those behaviors were at the daycare in particular. And the court found in the best interest of Mark that his visits cease because of course visitation is in the best interest of the child, not in the best interest of the mother. And so your honors will note that even at the termination, the daycare provider was called once again to speak to that particular uh, series of events. And she did come and testify at the termination as to exactly what she observed as to what was going on with Mark at that period of time, that he was indeed having a reaction to those visitations, that it was distressing to him. And so it was, Although it's been implied that the department had an agenda, um, I would say that that, was, that is um, not true. That the department was indeed trying to make sure that visits occurred, that they occurred no matter where the mother was, and that um, they occurred all the way up until the point where it was no longer in the best interest of the child. And so, Your Honor, at, Your Honors, thank you very much for your time and attention. And at this time, I will yield to Ms. Lynch. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning, Chief Judge Stroud, Judge Collins, and Judge Arrowwood. I'm Michelle Formidaval Lynch for the Guardian Ad Laudem Program on behalf of the two minor children in this case. The fundamental principle in our juvenile code is the best interest of the child. That is the polar star. But before determining the best interest of the child, the trial court must first make determinations of fact and law. That takes place in the adjudication where the trial judge is both the judge and jury. An appellate court is not a fact-finding court. It rules on issues of law. This is your role, and we ask that you rule on issues of law in the mother's appeal. The mother in this case does not accept that this court only rules on matters of law. Instead, she is asking that this court take on the role of the trial court by essentially retrying and reversing the adjudication by making a finding of fact that she was not responsible for the abuse and neglect of her infant son. On that basis, she contends that the court erred in ceasing reunification and concluding there were no grounds for termination of parental rights. She does not want this court to defer to the trial court's discretion and judgment as to witness credibility um, and all the evidence that was presented throughout these proceedings and all of its rulings from the first adjudication in June 2018 to the TPR in 2021. Simply, the mother is asking this court to do something it cannot do under the law of the state. Let's look at the facts um, before we get to the main questions of law. First, the adjudication. In, the, in this case, both the mother and the father stipulated to the findings of fact made by the trial court. The findings regarding the infant can were based on medical records and expert testimony of both the witnesses for DSS and the medical expert hired by the parents. They agreed that it was clear that Ken had experienced physical abuse. 
in addition to significant trauma to his head, skull, eyes, and ribs, when Kim was brought to the ER, his condition was dire. He had a body temperature of 94, was hypoglycemic, with a blood sugar level of 20. Kim's skeletal survey, head CT, and brain MRI were consistent with non-accidental or inflicted trauma on one or multiple occasions. The court in the adjudication made extensive findings on Ken's condition at the ER. Based on medical expert opinion, it found that Ken was abused and neglected. And based on the parents' statements, the court found that the parents were responsible for the abuse as they were the sole care providers when Ken was injured. The mother's argument in her brief that the court never made a finding that she abused Ken is accurate. While the court did not actually state the mother abused Ken, the court found her responsible, and this is the same thing under our law. In the disposition, the parents argued that Ken's injuries were due to his medical treatment at Duke after his premature birth and prior to his release on November 7th. Despite the fact on November 30th when he was seen at the ophthalmology appointment, there were no concerns noted, and there was also another appointment right after he was released for a well check, and there were no concerns noted at that point. The parents' expert, Dr. Brown, agreed that the injuries were caused by non-accidental trauma, and Ken did not have an underlying bone disorder that caused his injuries. In the disposition, the court found that Ken was with his mother all day, every day, from his discharge from Duke University Medical Center on November 7th to December 3rd when he was taken to the ER, but the court found that Ken's father was not with him every day due to his work. The adjudication and disposition were not appealed. Therefore, the findings and conclusions of the trial court in those orders are binding and they cannot be reversed. And the authority for that is in YYET. At disposition, the mother was ordered to complete certain tasks in order to remedy the behaviors or conditions that led to the removal of her children. Our courts have consistently held that a parent cannot demonstrate the conditions which led to a child's removal have been corrected without the parent acknowledging those conditions and taking steps to correct them. Despite very specific findings by the trial court in the adjudication and disposition that the mother was the only person that was with Ken continually from the time he left Duke on November 7th until he was taken to the ER on December 3rd, the mother has never acknowledged that she has any responsibility whatsoever for the trauma and neglect inflicted on her infant son. In the review and permanency planning hearings, the court consistently made findings that there was no explanation offered for Ken's condition. At one hearing in early 2019, the mother testified that her stepfather had physically and sexually abused her in the past, and he might be responsible for Ken's injuries. This seemed illogical to the trial court because the mother had previously recommended placement of her children with her mother and that stepfather. In May of 2020, we have discussed the father sent an email to the social worker that stated that when he was high and drunk, he dropped the child. He stated the mother was not at home when this happened. The mother has always testified that she was at home. The stories just do not match. Two doctors that treated Ken were contacted and they confirmed the father's statement did not explain all of Ken's injuries and condition when taken to the ER. The original diagnosis and opinions of the doctors remained the same. The court ultimately found that neither parent provided a full picture regarding Ken's injuries. Both had originally blamed the hospital, then the respondent mother's stepfather. The court found that reunification efforts with the mother and father would clearly be unsuccessful and inconsistent with the minor children's health or safety because there was still no explanation. At the TPR hearing in the spring of 2021, it was exactly the same. There was no new evidence or explanation for Ken's conditions and injuries. The court noted that the felony abuse charges against the respondent mother were dropped because respondent father had chosen to plead guilty. 
the charge against the father for assault by strangulation on the mother was also dropped in that plea agreement. But does this mean that that did not happen, that that was false, and that's why it was dropped? I believe the mother would not agree with that. Dismissal of the charges against the mother by the district attorney does not mean that this court, the court in which Judge Reinhart was the judge, cannot find both parents responsible for abuse and neglect. Again, the mother testified and gave no explanation for Ken's injuries, and she accepted the father's explanation despite the fact that the doctor originally hired by the parents, Dr. Brown, testified that the fall described by the father did not explain all of the injuries and the condition of Ken at the time he was brought to the R, ER. The mother states in her reply brief that there was no adverse credibility finding towards her in the PR, but the court made specific findings that there continues to be no explanation for Ken's injury and medical condition as it existed on December 3rd. The parents have not provided any plausible explanation that is supported by medical testimony. The court is back to when it originally adjudicated the case, despite the simplistic partial admission of the father. The court, and this is in the court's findings, the court has pleaded and begged for information as to what happened to Ken. It remains unexplained. Is this solely a credibility determination? Could it be possible for someone to be in a household where a child is abused, actually be physically present, and not know what happened? I hate to hypothesize, but uh, the trial judge in this case, she was judged the credibility of the witnesses, what the mother said in her testimony, and she found that there was not a clear explanation, that there needed to be further explanation by the mother on what happened. The mother never went into any detail. She just said she was there, she didn't know what happened. So is it a credibility determination that the trial court made that that that, that was not credible? Because you would concede that it would be possible to be in a home where an accident happens and you don't know what happens. That is possible, and if, if she felt that way, she should have appealed the adjudication because that is where that original finding and conclusion was made in the adjudication. And if, if she did not agree that, as the court found, that they were jointly and individually responsible, she should have appealed the adjudication, but she did not. So now the court can't overturn that at this point, at the TPR. If there were new evidence presented, I mean, that may be a case where some, but there was no new evidence presented. Um, Could it be in the best interest of the child? Could the best interest of the, the two boys be different? Could it be, can the court make, could the court have made a different determination of best interest with respect to Mark as with respect to Ken? Well, usually a court, if it finds that one child has been abused and neglected, if a child is in similar age, the, the court's usually, that is enough evidence to conclude that they both are. And I did want to point out that in the CANMEC that was done for um, Mark, respondent mother stated in her brief that guardian Adelina made several statements that were conjured from whole cloth regarding the parents' refusal to allow skeletal survey for Mark. I did make the citations in my brief to medical records pages 10 to 12 in which the doctor stated, I explained to the mother that I had recommended the skeletal survey to fully assess for prior injuries and bone health. The father was comfortable with the skeletal survey, but the mother was not. Thus, it was canceled. Then on page 12, it says, based on the information available at the time of Mark's CANMEC evaluation, we conclude that it appears unknown if Mark has experienced child physical abuse. Parents have declined recommendation for skeletal survey, which limits CANMEC's ability to comment on the presence or absence of previous skeletal injuries. There, CANMEC is not available to comment on Mark's overall health. And when the, you mentioned earlier about the visitation, when the trial court ceased visitation, the mother did not appeal that. 
and other cases of infant abuse decided by the appellate courts of this state where the parents were found to be the sole Let's go back to your okay. argument about not appealing. She would not have had a right to appeal that particular time. It would have been an interlocutory appeal, is that right? I believe that that was in the cease reunification order, which she's now appealing, and she does not present that in her appeal of the cease reunification order. You're saying she didn't make the argument about it. Right, she did not make an argument that the trial court erred by ceasing, by denying or um, ceasing visitation. Um, can we go back to this, uh, it's the adjudication, the original adjudication order, I think it's on page 55 here of the record, 56. When the child is adjudicated, is, is the status of the child adjudicated as a neglected child, or does that adjudication order blame parents for adjudication? Do you understand my question? Is it, is it a status order? or is when, it when it's neglect, it is status. Okay. When it's abuse, there has to be someone identified because under the definition of abuse, it said when the parents were caretakers, either inflict the abuse or allow it to be inflicted. So there has to be someone identified, and the court identified the father and the mother, just as the court did in YYET. And in that case, um, it pointed out that the adjudication could not be reversed, that it was binding on the court, and it referred back to a 1980s case in Ray Wheeler, where it stated, if you want to collater collaterally attack that order, you can't do that because it's not a matter of jurisdiction. The adjudication is binding on this court. The mother cannot appeal the findings in the adjudication and she does not challenge any of the findings in the cease reunification order. As for the TPR, she again had no better explanation for Ken's injuries than she did at the adjudication three years earlier. I'm sorry, I'm just gonna beat a dead horse for a second here. It says. It's order adjudged and decreed, number one, child is an abused, dependent, and neglected child. There doesn't say anything in there about who is responsible for that, page 59. It was in a prior finding where she talked about that they were the sole caregivers. It's a, it's a finding, but I guess my question is, do we have a conclusion as to who the responsible parties are in an adjudication order for abuse? I believe in her concluding that they're abused and then identifying who was responsible as the caregivers, if you look at the case law of, on adjudications and TPRs, they all point out the case in Ray KL lists a bunch of those cases that if the parents together were the sole caregivers when the child was injured and the court finds them responsible, then there's a joint and individual responsibility for the abuse. And the only way that can be separated is if the court does find that it was only one of them. And in this case, the court has never found that. There's never any evidence based on all of these injuries that the doctor said could not have been committed just by the act of the father. It just is not logical that his explanation explained it. I don't have much time, but if this, well, if this you're, court you're would- actually, if you need to conclude, because we had some questions, but I'll let you finish briefly. Okay, if this court were to find that there were no grounds for TPR from the mother in this case, that would mean that after the trial court had found the parents responsible for their child's abuse and neglect, the parents can deny knowledge or responsibility despite evidence to the contrary and fail to offer any reasonable explanation. But the TPR should be denied because the parents went through the motions of completing a case plan. This ruling would create dangerous precedent and shows no deference to case law and the trial court's judgment and discretion, which is an obligation of this court. And um, all of the case law shows that the parents cannot, by completing a case plan, they cannot remediate those conditions in a case where there's no expl explanation for the child's condition and injuries. They, said, if you can conclude briefly, because we're okay. over time. I mean, like a, a sentence. 
While the mother appeals the court's ruling as to the grounds for TPR and the adjudication, she does not actually challenge the dis disposition. Even though a court finds grounds for the TPR, it does not have to terminate parental rights if it finds it is not in the best interest of the child. In this case, the mother makes no argument that the TPR was not in the best interest of the children. She argues that the court did not consider relevant evidence in the disposition. Therefore, should this court rule that the trial court did not err in disallowing the testimony of Dr. Price, this court must affirm the ruling that the TPR was in the best interest of the children. Thank you. I'll begin with um, some of the arguments about the initial consent adjudication that was signed in 2018. That adjudication was done under consent, and it, it makes a note on page 829 that the mother entered that in the spirit of cooperation because she got legal advice that I would help her reunite. She saw the medical evidence that the, that the child had been abused. She didn't know who did it, and that's really the progeny of some of these um, explanations that um, were implausible, right? That her stepfather had done it or that Duke Hospital had done it. But really it came from a desire from the mother to figure out what happened. She could not figure it out. She did not witness it. She did not understand. But she saw the medical evidence that it must have been non-accidental trauma. And so she consented to that. And it was, a, it was a status. And now at this stage, it has to be parsed out who is responsible. The department tried grounds A8 against the mother. In their petition, they alleged that she was also responsible for felony assault on Ken. And the district court found that she, they did not prove their case and dismissed that grounds of termination against the mother. So the district court did find that the father was responsible for felony assault and the mother was not responsible for assault. That's the only way to read those two holdings in the conclusions of law together. I think, let me, I think the question in, in these cases of this nature uh, is often, you know, it's a question of timing of when someone should notice an issue. And I, and I know that's extremely difficult, obviously, and the trial court obviously struggled with that, as did all the doctors. So, you know, sometimes you have a situation where it's very clear, you know, like there's a serious injury to a child and a parent, the other parent say, you know, takes a child in for care immediately right away and it's clear that you know that parent you know, acted quickly quickly as they possibly could and then you have the other the other end of the spectrum you have the cases where a child is obviously uh, suffering prolonged abuse weeks months and a, a parent's not doing anything those are the easy cases right uh, of course this one is one of those in the middle um, and I think the thing that the trial court and the medical experts struggled with was if something, you know, well, obviously there were, based on the medical evidence, more than one event. And we don't know exactly how long a period that went over, but, you know, for a, a period of time. And that, you know, depending upon, because of the severity of some of these things, the question is, like, how, how quickly should mother realize, notice, take action on these things? And the trial court ultimately determined that, um, too much time went by, you might say, for her not to be held responsible. Is that kind of where it came down? I think that's where the court came down, but I think that it was an error because if you look at the evidence closely and the district court ultimately found that there was, all the district court could really decide was there was at least one incident of very serious abuse that weekend. That's the incident that Dr. Cynthia Brown describes as a violent shaking and either dropping or throwing. And then if the, if the father had re-swaddled Ken, put him back in his cradle, and this was at nighttime, and he slept through the night without taking feedings, he was a premature baby, he was degenerating very, very quickly, that that would explain most of the injuries. Now, well, but wasn't there testimony that the injuries and the, the various fractures were of various healings so that, that they wouldn't have occurred at one time? The rib fractures, there was testimony that the rib fractures were in various healing stages. And this is actually a really important point because this is what gave 
the mother reason to think that the father's explanation that someone at Duke Hospital had hurt him made sense. Because dating back several weeks, he was in the NICU. And so he had seen doctors repeatedly over the course of, first he was inpatient from his birth, August 15, 2017, until November 3, 2017. He was in the NICU. And then he was seeing doctors repeatedly. Doctors never noticed anything wrong with Ken until December 3rd. So it would not be reasonable to expect the mother to expect to, to see a, a, a rib fracture. I don't know how they occurred. Nobody knows how they occurred. But it would not be reasonable for her to notice it when all of these doctors whose care he was in over that time frame did not notice. But when she woke up on December 3rd and she noticed that he wasn't waking, he wasn't feeding, he didn't seem quite right, she first called her mom, and she testified that at that time, she hadn't grown up going to the doctor. She didn't have a doctor friend that she could call to ask. She didn't know you could call a pediatrician on a Sunday morning. She called her mom and asked for advice. And her mom said, wait, monitor him, wait and see. She was looking at his diapers. This was all in the, in the transcript. Uh, and ultimately decided to rush him to the hospital. And that did save his life. And she stayed with him the entire month. And she was heartbroken. And she didn't know what happened to him. And her, her partner, a person that she had two kids with, that she hadn't previously known to abuse her children, denied it. Was that unreasonable for her to believe him? Perhaps, but that's again where the domestic violence victimology testimony may have been helpful to the district court to understand why a relationship marked by power and control, including deception and gaslighting and manipulation, that might have seemed plausible. What she did was she consented to that adjudication in 2018 of the status of abuse and or neglect because she could see that it was true, but she did not take responsibility for the abuse because she didn't do it. There was testimony also at the permanency planning hearing where the social worker said that she had turned down various reasonable plea deals. The reason she did that while sitting in jail pre-trial was because she was innocent. And she ended visitation with Mark while she was in jail because she could see he was upset seeing her through the glass. And as the guardian attorney said, as soon as she was released, she asked to restart visitation, and the social worker said it went well with Mark. He was happy to see her. The parent coach testified at length about these visits and how it was very hard for Mark to leave his mom. And so the coach taught her a technique of giving him a kiss on the hand to hold until the next time she could visit him. There was very good testimony from the parent coach and from the parental capacity evaluator, both of whom spent much more time with the mother than unfortunately the department social worker was able to, given that turnover and the fact there were five social workers on this case from the inception even to the time that visitation was ended. And that decision to end visitation, the daycare provider is, is not an expert witness, was never certified as an expert witness, and nor was the therapist um, did the therapist ever come to give live testimony, nor was she certified as an expert in the causation of his upset. It's just as plausible he was upset at realizing he was being kept from his mother than that it was something to indicate something nefarious about his mother. And the fact that they ended that visitation, the, the mother did file a motion soon thereafter to restart the visitation. And that brings us, of course, to these procedural questions about the writ of cert for the reunification order. Um, there was an order preserving, or a, a notice preserving appeal that was filed. It's on page 465. And then the, the notice that was filed in July 2021 after the TPR, due to attorney error, did neglect to incorporate the earlier preservation. But this court, as in, or the Supreme Court, these courts, as in JH, in their discretion and in consideration of the serious consequences of these cases, will review them if need be, despite an attorney error. I don't think that her rights should be lost because of that. Again, the Guardian points to the polar star, the child's best interest, but really the department needs to prove its case through evidence before we even get to the dispositional phase. There were certainly errors in the dispositional phase and the fact that crucial evidence was not admitted. The evidence from Dr. Jessica Price, 
who would have testified about the differential outcomes for children who are separated from their biological kin versus children who are with non-kin. And in a case like this, where there were eight personal witnesses for the mother at disposition testifying to her personal equities, and the district court found she had many personal equities, uh, great parenting capacity, loving and supportive family and community, compared with a non-kinship home, that research would have been relevant for the district court to consider. And it was not reasonable, it was not, it was not um, Is that a discretionary ruling on the court as to whether to receive that evidence? I think in the context in which the district court decided that it was irrelevant because it did not come from North Carolina or Durham, and there's no reason to think that kind of research would be different for kids in North Carolina versus other states, that's a legal question that can be reviewed de novo. But, and I'm sorry, I'm oh, run, running into uh, beyond, but the other side had more time, so I'm going to ask yes. you. But whether or not to admit certain evidence is a discretionary ruling in and of itself, is it not? I've heard, your, I've heard what you said, but I'm trying to ask you how, does it, how does this get past discretion? I think it's by argument is that because she made a legal decision that this evidence was not relevant evidence, that is a legal determination that can be reviewed. It wasn't simply that she said, I don't need this evidence, it's not necessary, because under the statute it has to be relevant, reliable, and necessary. It wasn't the court saying it's not necessary to me, it was the court saying it's not relevant, and that was erroneous. I would just conclude, and if you'll permit me to read, um, the, the guardian attorney said that the mother has never taken any responsibility, and that's simply not the case. Um, she testified, touchingly and deeply during the trial about her responsibility and how much she regrets what occurred and how everything has transpired. And she said, even though I didn't hurt Ken, I'm still his mom. So it's my duty to protect him and it's my duty to keep him safe. And having the father, I just, I just wish I would have known. I should have known. So it hurts me that I didn't know. Thank you for your consideration. Thank you very much for your arguments, and we will adjourn. All rise. This session of the North Carolina Court of Appeals is adjourned.